Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. My own opinion is that the present state of things cannot last long. When or where or what the change will be is known only to the all-seeing eye of heaven. But I think some change must come. If we get peace, our political differences will at least subside, and we shall probably have a calm. If peace do not come, I do not pretend to conjecture what will happen. We must leave things to the direction of providence. Daniel Webster, January 11th, 1815. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge, and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 17, The War of 1812, Part 3. The last few months, indeed the last few days, of the year 1813 contained the seeds of the end of the war. In general, things were pretty gloomy for the United States and the administration of President James Madison. Months of inconclusive fighting on the northwest frontier had left British forces still in possession of Canada. Meanwhile, the Red Stick War with the Creek Indians was raging in the southeast. Worse than this, the British Navy had finally joined the war in a substantial way. Now that the Battle of Leipzig in October 1813 meant the clock was running out on Napoleon and his dying French Empire, the British saw no need to hold large numbers of ships in reserve to guard against France. Steadily throughout 1813, but even more in earnest after Leipzig, more and more British warships began to appear in American waters. The blockade was devastating to the American economy, or at least part of it. Even goods traveling internally within the United States were badly hit, because a lot of trade went by coastal ship. The inland roads were pretty bad in the second decade. 
During the height of the British blockade, a barrel of flour cost $8.50 in New York and $12 in Boston. A speculation bubble was steadily growing and might well take down the fragile economy when it burst. Worse than this, the war was bankrupting the United States. The initial measures taken to finance it, which were controversial when the war was ramping up in early 1812, were long ago exhausted. Secretary of Treasury William Jones, on his way out of office, estimated that the revenues of the U.S. government would be $16 million in 1814, but its expenses would be over $45 million. The Treasury Department was in a downward spiral. Proceeds from new loans were being used to pay the interest on old loans. There were no income taxes in the second decade. Most government revenue came from customs duties, and the economy was in a tailspin. The country was also terribly divided. Remember I said that part of the American economy was strangling for the British blockade? The Brits had decided to exempt New England from the blockade, at least at first. Their ports were open. Why? Because New England was mostly Federalist, and the Federalists were against the war. Britain was deliberately hammering a wedge into the American political system to split New England off from the rest of the country. And the spring campaign season, when British land troops could be expected to be on the offensive, hadn't even started yet. This was the situation that Madison and his political allies faced at the end of 1813. These were the seeds of how the rest of the war played out. The coming British offensives would eventually burn down Washington and convince many in the U.S. that the war couldn't be won. The political divisions eventually led to the Hartford Convention, a gathering of New England Federalists that threatened to split the United States apart. The economic problems meant that the U.S. would have to find a way to pull the plug on the war before it was completely destroyed economically. The point now was not to win, but to get the damn thing over with on the best possible basis. Then, on December 30, 1813, a British ship arrived on American shores. The British government had sent a message to the Madison administration. It did not literally consist of two words, but it may as well have, and the two words were, Want to negotiate? Months earlier, there had been some diplomatic buzzing about a proposal by the government of Russia to mediate the war. The Brits rejected that. But now, they were offering to open direct negotiations with the United States. Madison jumped at it. His administration put together a peace delegation, and they were some heavy hitters. John Quincy Adams, son of the former president, currently serving in St. Petersburg. James Bayard and Jonathan Russell were trusted political allies. And Madison offered to send Henry Clay, Speaker of the House of Representatives, one of the original War Hawks. That would conveniently get him out of the way politically if and when it came time for Congress to evaluate a peace proposal. The end was coming even as 1814 began but there were still a lot of twists and turns to come. Then, when we reach the end, we have to consider the hard questions that linger after the war is over. Who won? What did the war accomplish? Was it worth it? This is our roadmap for tonight, as we move into the final stretch, part three, of our journey into the War of 1812. Whether we Americans like it or not, the War of 1812 was always a sideshow to the Napoleonic Wars in Europe. While there was no coordination between American and French forces, and in fact American politicians in 1812 considered declaring war on France as well as Great Britain, we were effectively on Napoleon's side as an enemy of his enemy, Britain. 
The downfall of Napoleon and his brief return to power is a very long and complicated story that I'm going to devote a dedicated episode to, perhaps the season finale of Second Decade Podcast. Suffice it to say for now, after the Battle of Leipzig in October 1813, the noose continually tightened around what was left of Bonaparte's empire. On April 11, 1814, Napoleon was forced to abdicate the throne of the French Empire. Troops of the coalition of nations against him, including Russia, occupied Paris. That was some payback. Russian troops occupying Paris less than two years after Napoleon cooled his heels in Tsar Alexander's posh crib at the Kremlin. We know how that turned out from episode 12. When our de facto ally got knocked out of the war, it was essentially decisive. There was no way the United States could stand alone against Britain for very long. But the flip side of that was, when Britain's war with Napoleonic France ended, the reasons for the policies that caused Americans to declare war would also go away. Back in episode 15, part 1 of this series, I told you about how the orders in council, the British policy that most irritated Americans, was already repealed before the war began. Word didn't reach Washington in time. With the orders in council off the table from the beginning, was there really a conceptual reason to continue the war? There might be political reasons, but was the national interest of the United States really at stake? We'll return to this question at the end of the episode. During 1813, there were a lot of what I call fort battles, military engagements at this fort on the northwest frontier or that one, some involving Native Americans, others not, and the results were mixed. This pattern largely continued during the campaign season of 1814. Things were a little different now than they had been because the British had steadily been sending troops to Canada, and American enlistments were finally starting to yield usable armies, instead of the incompetent greenhorns we saw in 1812 at places like Queenston Heights. On May 15th, an American commander, one Colonel John B. Campbell, got a little out of hand while attacking a British outpost on Lake Erie called Fort Dover. Raiding the fort with 700 American troops, Campbell ultimately burnt Fort Dover to the ground. An American participant in the raid described it. A scene of destruction and plunder now ensued, which beggars all description. We saw these kinds of hit-and-run raids, usually ending in one town or another in flames, in the last episode. This was kind of the pattern of these fort battles. Still, American forces had a hard time trying to land any sort of decisive blow against the British. American commanders thought that Lake Erie was a good place to strike, mainly because U.S. ships controlled the lake, thanks to the efforts of Oliver Hazard Perry in the previous year. Captain Sinclair, Perry's successor as commander in the area, decided to attack Fort Mackinac, which is on an island, sort of a Gibraltar on the Great Lakes. Unfortunately, Sinclair's attack on Fort Mackinac failed. A force of 200 British and several hundred Native Americans hidden in the forest engaged American troops on August 4, 1814. The battle went badly for Sinclair. Later, the remainder of his ships were captured by British vessels on Lake Erie. Fort Mackinac continued to fly the Union Jack until the end of the war. There was a surprising American land victory on July 5th along the Chippewa River near Niagara Falls. That it was a victory at all is attributable to the thoroughness and dedication of one American commander, Winfield Scott, whose reputation as a top-notch military man was cemented by this battle. Scott was a relentless drill master. He reportedly drilled his men for 10 hours a day. 
He also dressed them up in smart little uniforms that were different than anybody else's. Very nice gray wool tunics with a double row of brass buttons down the front and white pants. How fetching. Especially with their big tall helmets. Uniform designers love tall helmets in the second decade. You can imagine these guys got a lot of girls when they wore their smart new duds around town. Of course, white pants are tough to keep clean. The reason for these non-regulation uniforms, which were supposed to be blue, was pretty simple. The contractor who was supposed to make the uniforms ran out of blue cloth. Well, either gray would have to do, or the next battle with the British would be like a shirts versus skins basketball game. Anyway, on July 3rd, 1814, General Jacob Brown led 3,500 of these well-dressed chaps across the Niagara River into Canada. After taking Fort Erie, the American army marched out to try to trap a larger British force. Suddenly, a bunch of Native American warriors came rushing out of the forest. The battle against the Indians went well enough, but then British regulars appeared, and the Americans started to crack. Suddenly, who should appear on the scene but Winfield Scott himself? His troops called him Old Fuss and Feathers, even though he was still pretty young at the time. He had 1,500 more well-dressed troops. Because of the gray coats, the British thought they were tangling with militia. When they realized they were actually competent, the British commander, General Ryall, is supposed to have said, Those are regulars, by God! Earning him the Captain Obvious Award for the War of 1812. The funky uniforms made an impression. Eventually, this exact style of uniform was adopted as the regulation duds for cadets at the United States Military Academy, West Point. It's still in use today, at least for ceremonial occasions. The term dress gray refers to this uniform. The Battle of Chippewa was an American victory, but the next time the advantages weren't so clear. A few weeks later, on July 25th, Scott and Ryall went head-to-head again at a place called Lundy's Lane, not far from Niagara Falls. This was possibly the bloodiest land battle of the War of 1812. For five hours, the battle raged back and forth. At one point, the fighting was hand-to-hand, with lots of bayonets. Ouch. Casualties were so high that eventually the Americans were outnumbered and withdrew. Both Ryall and Winfield Scott were badly wounded. Ryall, in fact, was captured, gushing blood from a bad arm wound. He survived and eventually returned to England. Incidentally, the Battle of Lundy's Lane, which was technically a draw, gets a passing mention in one of my all-time favorite movies, Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York. The villain of the film, Bill the Butcher, played brilliantly by Daniel Day-Lewis, mentions that his father was, quote, murdered by the British with all of his men, 25th of July, Anno Domini, 1814. He can only be talking about the Battle of Lundy's Lane. There were some genuine moments of valor, and at last some military competence, for American forces in 1814 on the Canada frontier and New York. But the decisive engagements of that year were occurring elsewhere, and not always against the British. We last encountered Andrew Jackson in the previous episode, charging bravely off to lead the Tennessee militia against the Red Sticks, a warlike faction of the Creek Nation. Jackson had narrowly escaped with his life after a running gun battle on the streets of Nashville with a future U.S. Senator. Hauling his rail-thin frame and the bullet from the gunfight still stuck in his shoulder, Jackson crossed the Tennessee River in the fall of 1813 to move against the Red Sticks. There were a few small battles against the Creek Indians in what's now northern Alabama. Jackson's army, however, if you can call it that, was kind of a mess. It was hard to keep them supplied in this frontier territory. The usual problems of bad food and disease were nibbling away at it. 
but his biggest problem was the fact that most of his troops had signed up for short-term enlistments. And when their enlistments were up, they would just drop what they were doing and go right home. By mid-January 1814, having been in the field several months, Jackson had suffered so many desertions from militiamen whose enlistments were up that he was down to a grand total of 103 troops. The governor finally supplied him with some fresh troops, 900 men who weren't trained and who were only enlisted for 60 days. If Old Hickory was going to do anything decisive against the Red Sticks, he would have to do it fast, before his latest batch of mostly useless troops walked off the job. It's amazing the degree to which enlistment deadlines drove military strategy in these frontier wars. But that was the result of military thinking in the second decade, especially among Americans. The idea of having a standing professional army, trained and ready to go at all times, was something pretty new in the nation's experience. On January 17, 1814, Jackson marched out with this rinky-dink little army, determined to teach those mean old red sticks a lesson they'd never forget. It didn't go so well. There were two skirmishes, one of them at a place called, now I have to be careful how I pronounce this, Emuckfaw Creek. I have to say that carefully, in the same way that you have to pronounce the name of the old hamburger chain, Fuddruckers, because if you mix up some syllables there, you're accidentally cursing like a sailor. Anyway, while Jackson did engage the Red Sticks, the battle at Expletive Deleted Creek was pretty much a draw, and while the Red Sticks couldn't deliver a knockout blow against his army, he realized his own chance to defeat them was gone. Jackson withdrew to Fort Strother. There, on February 6, 1814, God, or at least the War Department, answered Jackson's prayers. A new force of troops joined him, and they were regular U.S. Army infantry, not militia, thank God. In mid-March, now with an army of about 3,000 men, including a few hundred Creek Indians opposed to the Red Stick faction, Jackson pressed forward once again. This time, the site of the battle was along the bend of a river, the Tallapoosa River in Alabama. In fact, the battle is called Horseshoe Bend. When Jackson realized that an artillery barrage wasn't going to do much against the Red Sticks' carefully constructed earthworks fort, he ordered his men to fix bayonets and charge. Running true to form, Jackson's Indian fighters wreaked their usual measure of bloody mayhem and appalling atrocities. 800 of the approximately 1,000 Red Stick warriors at Horseshoe Bend were killed, and Jackson's men skinned the corpses and made bridle reins out of them. But that smelled good. They also chopped off the noses of Red Stick Dead as souvenirs. This kind of grisly trophy-taking was especially prevalent in conflicts between Americans and Indians, and when it came to Native Americans, there was pretty much no line that Andrew Jackson wouldn't cross. The battle occurred at the end of March 1814, but Jackson managed to hang around for a couple of months after the Red Sticks were effectively defeated. His true purpose was to lead an army down to Pensacola and tear Florida off the buttocks of the dwindling Spanish Empire. In the meantime, since the Red Sticks were defeated, why not grab some of their land? In the Treaty of Fort Jackson, which Old Hickory forced the Creek Nation to sign on August 9, 1814, the Indians ceded 23 million acres of land in what's now Georgia and Alabama to the United States. 23 million acres. And in the process of robbing the Creeks blind, Jackson managed to cheat the Creek factions that, that had supported him in the Red Stick War by taking some of the land held by the portion of the Creek Nation that had opposed the Red Sticks. Nice payback, eh? The treaty was not subtle and wasn't meant to be. Its preamble reads, quote, Whereas an unprovoked, inhuman, and sanguinary war 
waged by the hostile Creeks against the United States, hath been repelled, prosecuted, and determined successfully on the part of said states, in conformity with the principles of national justice and honorable warfare, numberless aggressions had been committed against the peace, the property, and the lives of the citizens of the United States. End quote. There are many, many treaties that the government of the United States signed with various Indian nations during the 19th century, most of them very unfair, but there are few that stand out quite as egregiously as the Treaty of Fort Jackson. Now, the man who that fort was named after, and who'd single-handedly added 23 million acres of land to the United States, was rapidly becoming a national hero. But Andrew Jackson was just getting started. His further exploits over the next couple of months would put a surprising end to the War of 1812, on which the clock, by the late summer of 1814, was about to run out. In 1814, the British sought to land a knockout blow against the United States, and they came pretty close to achieving it. Time and logistics were finally on their side, with Napoleon defeated, more and more British troops and ships were making the voyage west to do battle with Americans. The Navy was the Brits' strongest weapon. They'd already blockaded most of the eastern seaboard, but in April 1814, they decided to end the exemption of New England from the blockade. As much as they hoped to turn Federalist against Democratic-Republicans on the issue of the war, too many goods were getting through. Once the blockade was tightened, it was very effective. Commercial exports from the United States had been $61,300,000 in 1811. In 1814, exports were $6,900,000, a precipitous decline. Imports couldn't get in either. Remember, the U.S. federal government's main source of income at this time was customs duties on imports. The blockade struck pretty hard at James Madison's purse strings, and as he was already running out of money to continue the war, he felt the pinch. The British also used their ships to raid and hassle American settlements on the coasts. There are many stories from many coastal communities in the War of 1812 about British ships slipping into harbors and up rivers, and setting American ships on fire, often at night. British strategy was generally a plague of hit-and-run raids aimed at chipping away America's ability to conduct maritime commerce. They were very effective. In July 1814, the Brits actually invaded eastern Maine. Taking over a small island called Moose Island in the Bay of Fundy, the Redcoats took over various parts of the Maine coast over the next few months, destroying property and burning a ship called the USS Adams. The British forced the residents, at least those who wanted to stay, to take an oath of loyalty to the British king. Surprisingly, many of them did. A Salem, Massachusetts newspaper reported, quote, It was scarcely possible to conceive the joy of the inhabitants. At the striking of the flag, some huzzahed, and others, men of influence, observed, Now we shall get rid of the tax gatherers, and now the damned Democrats will get it. I bet that's something you didn't expect. Americans rejoicing on being conquered by the British. Gee, does anybody else remember in the last episode when politicians predicted that Canadians would welcome American troops as liberators? In Maine, at least, exactly the opposite happened. Parts of Maine remained in British hands until the end of the war. But even more humiliating than forcing the residents of Bangor to drink to the king's health or eat Yorkshire pudding again was what the Brits did to Washington, D.C., this is one of the central stories of the War of 1812, and one of the most spectacular events of the entire second decade. 
And in this episode, I'm mostly going to skip over it. The reason for that is, the burning of Washington is such a juicy story that I have to leave it for its own episode. It is a great and fascinating story, but it may seem a little odd at first that the capture of the capital of the United States by the enemy and the massive destruction of its public buildings was not simply game over for the U.S. in this war. I mean, our capital got captured and burnt down. It doesn't get much more decisive than that in war. But within the context of British strategy, you have to understand that the attack on Washington in August 1814 was just another one of their hit-and-run coastal raids, albeit on a bigger scale and a much more attractive target. It was part of a broader invasion of the Chesapeake region, which went well for them because they could use both land forces and naval forces in conjunction. The man in charge of it all was one Admiral Alexander Cochrane. Ordered by the British government to get back at the troublesome Yankees for stunts like the burning of York, which we covered in the last episode, Cochrane established a base on Tangier Island in Virginia in the spring of 1814, which eventually became a haven for escaped Virginia slaves. From Tangier Island, the Brits could raid the whole Chesapeake area up and down pretty much with impunity. As should surprise no one who's been paying attention the last two episodes, the Madison administration's response to this growing threat was, quite typically, too little, too late. Oh, the British won't attack, they said. Washington has no strategic importance. Come again? The enemy capital? No strategic importance? Eventually, Madison got a clue, but the guy he put in charge of Washington's defense, the nephew of the governor of Maryland who was a Federalist, wasn't very capable, and the 500 troops he had just weren't going to do much against the armada of 20 warships and thousands of veteran redcoats that Cochrane was about to pump right up the Potomac River, and, at least figuratively speaking, up James Madison's rear end. The defenders did eventually amass some more troops, but it didn't end up helping much. The decisive engagement was at Bladensburg, Maryland. An ultimate defeat for American forces, which left Washington wide open, the Battle of Bladensburg is notable in U.S. history for being the only time in which a sitting U.S. president personally commanded troops in battle. The glow of Madison's brief martial glory was, shall we say, somewhat outshined by the light of the flames roaring from the roofs of the Capitol in the White House, which the Brits put to the torch at about 8 p.m. on the evening of August 24, 1814. Revenge, the British said, for the burning of York, which is now Toronto. Bad as this was, it still was just a hit-and-run raid. The British vacated Washington, D.C. the next day, August 25th, but they weren't done yet. The next target was Baltimore, an important seaport and military center. This one didn't go quite as swimmingly for the Brits. On September 12th, there was a battle at North Point, 14 miles from Baltimore. Although the British won this battle, they suffered considerably more casualties, and the commander, General Robert Ross, was killed by an American sharpshooter. His body was shipped back to England, embalmed in rum. What a way to go. With this costly victory in hand, the British decided a full-on assault on Baltimore was a bit rich for their blood. Instead, they launched an assault against a fortress, Fort McHenry, in Baltimore Harbor. Although the British had better rockets, they were called Congreve rockets, militarily, this was pretty pointless. They couldn't damage the fort's heavy walls enough to seriously threaten the garrison there. After 25 hours of shelling, they gave up. 
The siege of Fort McHenry was, of course, the context of Francis Scott Key's writing of the words to the Star-Spangled Banner. He didn't write the music, which was an old British drinking song. Key was being sequestered temporarily on a British ship within view of the fort. The flag that flew over Fort McHenry that night currently hangs, heavily restored, in the main hall of the Smithsonian Institution. This is one of the few things about the War of 1812 that Americans care to remember. The British did not get Baltimore, but even without that, it's clear that the summer of 1814 was an utter disaster for the United States. All these battles, all this effort, and the only thing we had to show for it was a set of patriotic song lyrics. With eastern Maine under the Union Jack and Washington, D.C. looking like the setting of the video game Fallout 3, there's really no escape from the conclusion that we were losing the War of 1812, and losing very decisively. By the fall of 1814, it was obvious that something had to give. Madison was beset on all sides with problems. Things had gone badly enough on the battlefields, but that was hardly the only thing on his mind. For one thing, the government was almost broke. I've already mentioned how and why tax revenue dried up. Unfortunately for Madison, the only other way to finance the war, deficit spending, wasn't working either. In July 1814, the federal government floated $6 million in bonds. They raised only $2.5 million, and even that was after selling the bonds at a 20% discount. Either nobody wanted to pay for the war, or they didn't have the money to, or both. So much illegal trade was going on, especially between New England and Canada, that what money did exist in the United States was rapidly leaving the United States and going into the hands of foreign merchants. The government couldn't pay its bills. Without being able to pay recruitment bounties, the army couldn't raise fresh troops. Without being able to pay soldier salaries, troops deserted in droves. Worst of all, the people in the states were more divided than ever. The downturn in economic fortunes hit New England especially hard. Its ports were idle. The ships were bottled up in harbor by the British blockade. Federalists, who never liked the war in the first place, really turned against the administration toward the end of 1814. They were the minority party nationally, but they were definitely the majority party across New England. This was a huge problem for Madison. In the fall of 1814, Federalists in New England started agitating for a special political convention with the specific aim of proposing amendments to the U.S. Constitution. This was the official point. Among especially radical Federalists, however, there was a subcurrent within these demands. The suggestion that perhaps New England should split off from the United States, form its own country, and make a separate peace with England. The secessionists were a minority, and as the convention got organized, the Federalist Party leaders were careful to select moderates and level-headed folks. But politically, the Hartford Convention ultimately became associated with the threat of New England secession. The convention met in Hartford, Connecticut from December 15, 1814 to January 5, 1815. Their motives were generally pure, but the Hartford Convention would eventually have the effect of putting a nail in the coffin of the Federalist Party on the national level. I went into the subject of the Hartford Convention in some detail in the very first episode of this podcast, which was about the election of 1816. I'm not going to rehash those details here. If you're interested, go back and listen to episode one. It's a fascinating story. Suffice it to say, the Hartford Convention, which officially stopped well short of advocating secession, was deeply alarming to the Madison administration and the Democratic-Republican Party. It was one more big neon sign that continuing the war was a threat to the stability of the American Republic.
I just said that the Hartford Convention met between December 15, 1814 and January 5, 1815. It just so happens that this period, the two months of December 1814 and January 1815, were exactly when two other very significant events were happening in other parts of the world. Remember the peace commissioners that Madison sent to negotiate with the Brits. What were they doing all this time? They weren't just sitting around in their hotel rooms ordering room service on the government's dime. They were actually working pretty hard, but their work was slow. Diplomacy moved at a snail's pace in the second decade. Assembling in Europe in June, it was actually August before the Americans, John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay, chief among them, got into the same room as the British negotiators. After several postponements and venue changes, it turned out that that room was located in the city of Ghent, Belgium. Why? It's a long story. I told this story, in fact, in Episode 8, the Christmas special. What ultimately emerged from that hotel meeting room in Ghent was the treaty that bears its name, which was signed on Christmas Eve, December 24, 1814. If there's any one thing that demonstrates how totally unnecessary the War of 1812 was, it's the Treaty of Ghent. You would think a treaty that ends a major war would actually address the central issues the war was supposed to be about, but not in this case. There was no need even to mention the Orders in Council, which, as you've probably become tired of me reminding you, were off the table even before the war began. Well, what about impressment? The American delegation decided not to insist on concessions on this issue. The war with Napoleon was over, and the Brits didn't need all those sailors anymore anyway. As for the other issues, who got which fort on the frontier and where the border between the U.S. and Canada should be, the Brits gave way on one thing after another. There's a definite sense that the British didn't try very hard in the Ghent negotiations, but it wasn't because they were capitulating to Americans. Aside from recognition that we were not going to take over Canada, there wasn't very much that we had that the British wanted. Mostly, like us, they just wanted to get the damn thing over with. The Treaty of Ghent essentially restored everything to exactly the way it was before the war. In international law, they call this concept status quo antebellum. No big exchanges in territory, no new borders, no reparations. Basically, give us back our POWs, we'll give you back yours, stop shooting, and we'll call it even. When the shooting would stop, though, was subject to an unusual procedure. Instead of the war ending when the treaty was signed, which was usual in diplomacy, the Brits insisted that the war would end only when both sides had ratified the treaty. Almost as soon as the ink was dry, Henry Clay's secretary grabbed a copy of the treaty and boarded a ship for the U.S., but it would still be a while, six weeks or so, before they reached Washington. Once again, we were, as we were at the beginning of the war, were at the mercy of the slow speed of communications in the second decade. The final phase of the war played out in the southeast, and once again Andrew Jackson had his grubby fingers all over it. In May 1814, between the time he defeated the Red Sticks at Horseshoe Bend, but before he forced the Creeks to sign that treaty, Andrew Jackson had assumed command of the U.S. forces in the Gulf Coast region. With the British ramping up operations in this area, this was the perfect situation to try to grab Florida, which seems to have been Jackson's main preoccupation. Florida was nominally controlled by the Spanish, but the British were constantly meddling down there. In addition to arming local Indians, which is something the Spanish did too, Admiral Cochrane dispatched some forces, with the permission of the Spanish, to occupy Pensacola in August 1814. The British also began to make threatening noises toward nearby Louisiana, 
whose main port, New Orleans, was the key to the Mississippi. In November 1814, Jackson made his long-awaited lunge toward Florida. He attacked Pensacola. The British fell back, but they blew up the forts at Pensacola, which made it militarily pretty worthless. Jackson occupied a bunch of smoking rubble. Ultimately, he and his army left, marching to Mobile, and eventually to New Orleans itself. Throughout these operations, Jackson was plagued by the same problem that had given him so much trouble in the Red Stick War. The enlistments of the portion of his army that was militia would soon be up, in mid-January. If there was going to be a battle with the British, he was going to have to get it over with quickly. To his credit, Jackson really did beef up the defenses of New Orleans. In addition to his own army and local militia, called up by Governor William Claiborne, he armed just about everybody he could persuade to join him, including even a regiment of black troops from Santa Domingo, and the Pirates. The Pirates are quite famous in the Battle of New Orleans. Like something out of a trashy period Netflix series, there was a nest of river pirates and privateers headquartered not far from New Orleans, led by a colorful rogue called Jean Lafitte. I used to live in New Orleans, and let me tell you, Jean Lafitte was a local hero. There's a very old building in the north of the French Quarter, original building built in 1722, that Lafitte used as a blacksmith shop. Today it's a bar, Jean Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop, the oldest building in the United States that's today being used as a tavern. Lafitte, who threw his river pirates, called the Baratarians, in with Andrew Jackson, became Old Hickory's unofficial second-in-command during the battle. He was hoping to get his people pardoned after the war. It worked. Although the Battle of New Orleans is usually considered to have been the major engagement that occurred on January 8th between the armies of Jackson and the British commander, General Pakenham, actually there were several small-scale battles leading up to that, beginning in mid-December after a British invasion convoy arrived from Jamaica. But the big show got going on the morning of January 8, 1815. The military history of this battle involves a lot of that arrows-on-maps stuff that I'm not very good at, but let's just say that, however horrible he was as a human being, Andrew Jackson did a pretty damn good job at the Battle of New Orleans. It was one of the few land battles that American forces won decisively. Poor General Pakenham got chopped in half by a cannonball. The British suffered over 2,400 casualties, killed, wounded, and missing, to the U.S.'s 350. The Brits were forced to withdraw from New Orleans, but that still wasn't the end. They were besieging Mobile in February when news arrived from Washington of the Treaty of Ghent. Jackson, for his part, went right back to his old tricks after the battle, ruling New Orleans with an iron fist. He threw a newspaper editor in jail for writing an editorial criticizing him, and also threw a federal judge in the Huskow. Having caught up with a number of deserters from the Tennessee militia, Jackson had them tried, and six of them faced a firing squad. This would later come back to haunt Jackson in his political career. At 8 p.m. on February 11, 1815, the favorite, the ship carrying Henry Clay's secretary and a copy of the treaty, docked in New York Harbor. An express rider set out immediately for Washington with a copy, arriving in 32 hours, which is kind of fast for one guy on horseback between New York and Washington. It was obvious that Madison and the politicians were eager to get the thing over with. Neither the President nor the Senate quibbled over the treaty. If it had been a blank piece of paper with nothing but signatures on it, they probably still would have ratified it. At 11 p.m. on February 17, 1815, the War of 1812 officially came to a close. It was all over.
What did the war accomplish? In my view, remarkably little. The big promise of the war, at least for Americans, was the conquest of Canada. Despite numerous attempts, it didn't come off. Where do you go from there? What policy objectives were achieved by this conflict? It's a surprisingly hard question. It's also surprisingly hard to decide who won the War of 1812. To Madison and the Democratic Republicans, obviously we did, but that was mostly political spin. If you look at the reasons why we fought the war, and then compare the actual results, the disparity is pretty startling. The United States accomplished exactly nothing that it set out to do when Congress declared war in June 1812. What we really wanted was an end to maritime harassment and the ability to conduct sea trade with Europe without the Brits breathing down our necks. That situation was accomplished, but not at all by force of arms. The British gave up the orders in council unilaterally, and after Napoleon threw in his brocaded towel, the situation that gave rise to the harassment and the trade difficulties was over, and wasn't likely to return. Furthermore, the United States had actually made relations with Native Americans much worse. The various coalitions of Indian nations that opposed the U.S. were mostly defeated, but that was hardly the end of Native American resistance. The Indian Wars continued to rage off and on for the remainder of the 19th century. So consider this question. If the British had won the War of 1812, what would that victory have looked like? I suggest to you, it would have looked an awful lot like what really happened. Peace restored, Canada intact, and the unnecessary distraction of military and commercial conflict with the United States removed. The Brits never wanted this war, and after 20 years of fighting Napoleon, they just wanted peace. It was a distraction to them. They never had any big stake in it. Historians are fond of saying that the War of 1812 was a second American Revolution, or the second phase of the American Revolution. Honestly, I'm not sure I agree with that. The enemy was the same Great Britain, and the war arose out of desires to protect and defend American sovereignty. But a second American Revolution? I'm sorry, I don't buy it. I don't buy it because it's not as if the British were ever seeking to reverse the result of the American Revolution. It's not like if they won, King George would get to rip up the Declaration of Independence and we'd go back to being British colonies again. That was never in the cards. What I do like is the characterization of historian Alan Taylor, who observed that the revolution left America and Britain incompletely separated. The War of 1812 completed that process of separation. If there is a tangible benefit to the War of 1812, that was it. If you liked this podcast, please share it, tell somebody about it. Mention it on your social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatever you do. Leaving a star rating and a review on iTunes is especially helpful, because it will help other history buffs, like you, find this podcast. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. In addition to my Patreon account, you can find me on Twitter at seanmunger. There's an underscore there and my website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include The War of 1812, A Forgotten Conflict by Donald R. Hickey, University of Illinois Press, 1989. Music credits. The main theme of this podcast is titled String Impromptu Number 1 by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. 
used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.